Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jenna Waller. Thanks so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bow Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. Welcome to another special edition of Ragcast Outdoors. We're going to do another rewind for you this week as we spend time with our families. But we wanted to take you back to the very beginning. One of the first guests that we had on the podcast was Mr. Buck Tilton. And Buck is a good friend of mine, an incredible author. He's written over 50 books. Most of it's related to the outdoors and survival. So this podcast is perfect for those of you who are hunters, anglers, any kind of outdoorsman, because you can learn a lot from Buck Tilton. In fact, he's the guy that wrote the textbook for outdoor and wilderness survival before all these wilderness shows and outdoor shows. So I hope you'll sit back and relax and enjoy this special edition of the Radcast Rewind with our friend, Buck Tilton. So welcome, Buck. Well, thank you, boys. Yeah, it's good to have you. It's good to be here. How did you get into this whole thing of you know, backcountry medicine, wilderness stuff. Like, Ooh, personal how did history. that start? Yeah. Okay. I love personal history because I can make it up as I go along. <laughs> but close to the truth is I used to work for Outward Bound and became a senior uh, trip leader. So is Outward Bound kind of a wilderness school? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been around a long time. They have different branches. The basic, their basic mission is to take people outdoors and help them sort through the any dilemmas or personal struggles they might be going through. And it, But in the process, their clients are taught outdoor skills, living, taking care of yourself, outdoor types of skills. So that was my job for a while. In that position, I was invited by Outward Bound to go to a wilderness medicine course taught by these two guys from the Northeast, a doctor and a paramedic who thought they had a great new idea about how first aid should be handled when the do- when a doctor's far away. Because, you know, the basic goal of emergency medicine is to get your patient to the hospital as quickly as possible. It's kind of difficult when you're in the backcountry, hiking, yeah. fishing. And when you're on the backside of Kilimanjaro or uh, in, way in North Alaska. So it seemed like a good idea to me. I was already an advanced first aid instructor. So I went, I went and took a course from these boys, and I was fascinated by it. And being young and cocky, I said, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I started my own company. Back then, there wasn't as much regulation on who and what could be taught uh, in terms of handling people medically. The medical profession's always been somewhat careful about who they certify, but because wilderness medicine was new nobody knew how careful to be or what kind of careful they should be so I got a company going based out of Colorado and uh, ended up writing the original 
wilderness medicine textbook, which I see sitting in front of Patrick right now. <laughs> That's right. So it was kind of funny when I Google your name and Buck Tilton books, one of the number one things that comes up is this wilderness first responder and wilderness first aid. And it's got a lot of ratings as far as being a very good book. I was blessed by Buck. by He gave me a copy of this about a year ago, I guess. We were talking about black widow spiders and rattlesnake bites and stuff like that. And so I went through it, read through it. It's it's a very good book. I mean, even for just a guy like me who has a farm here out in Wyoming, you know, you think about, you know, spiders and snakes and things that you deal with. I mean, and I'm far out too, 20 minutes from a emergency room. So it's kind of good to know when you've got four little kids running around, like if one of them happens to get bit by a black widow or a rattlesnake on the front porch or whatever it might be, you know, oh, sure. how to handle it. Yeah, the key element is time in wilderness medicine. You simply can't pack them and go. You have to figure out how to deal with people over time, and that's essentially what's the difference. That is the essential difference between wilderness emergency medicine and other forms of emergency medicine. I was <clears throat> thinking about that. David goes miles and miles in on horses, and, you know, my dad used to do that. I'm allergic to horses, so I can't. But, you know, when I think about that, if he's on a horse, on a trail, gets thrown off the horse, gets hurt, he's in a real bad spot. Especially, that's why we always tell people, don't go by yourself, for one. Because if you get hurt, no one's going to know. And chances of you surviving something on your own up there aren't very good. Yeah, um, yeah. the, the, the age-old safety maxim in terms of people is always travel in at least threes. So how does that relate? Just thinking about David here, how does that relate to bear safety? Because that's something that we do have to actually think about here. Primary uh, factor in, in bear safety is if you can outrun the other two people that are with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm safe in this room then. <laughs> I'm very popular in bear country because I can't run. <laughs> Did you want me to talk about yeah, talk about bears. Talk about, about bears. what people should be thinking about because I know most of our audience has had either experience with or thinks about it when they go up there. So Yeah, well, try not to smell like bacon. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are basic safety guidelines for being in bear country and relatively well known. Um, yeah, I've heard that when you're traveling in a group of three, that's the best, three or more. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's been a fatal encounter between three or more people and a bear. I could uh, call, cause a rash of phone-ins calling me an idiot, but um, I never remember seeing um, anything about a fatal encounter when there are three or more humans. I believe there was one incident I can recall. It was back in the Northeast here not very long ago. It was some college students, but in, inevitably what happened is most of them ran away and it became a one-on-one -on -one situation so so i think the single most important thing is to travel in groups of three or more in bear country stick together yeah keep your food away from your campsite yeah. everything everything you do that generates interesting smells which by the way is almost everything you do out there to a bear you should try to keep those smells to a minimum where you're hanging out especially mm -hmm. where you're going to sleep you know, don't don't sleep with toothpaste or, or the, the salt shaker or the Snickers bar. Keep them well away from you when you're not actually eating. 
So I shouldn't hide my jerky under my pillow? Correct. Okay, good. <laughs> well, surprisingly, bears actually, the smell of gasoline, I've had them bite several different mm-hmm. gas cans, and they bit a hole in the can of bear spray a couple of years ago. We left one at camp, and a black bear come through camp while we were gone all day. I've never heard that one. That's He, he bit a hole in everything, but... Okay. Yeah, he was testing everything out. Is this edible? Yeah, maybe not. Many things are edible to bears. Yeah, and I know for a lot of people, the anxiety of bears when you're up there is is a real thing. And when when people do get attacked by bears, I mean, you got to be able to know how to take care of somebody that's been torn up by a bear. <laughs> it could happen. Yeah. Um, and t- one more thing in terms of safety, and I'm. Sure, everybody listening to this has heard this as well. Don't run away from them. Right. So you don't want to run away from bears. No. You really don't. It, it triggers their predator response, and yeah. they instantly go to, you're now food. Yeah, they're, that's the way they survive. Some runs, they chase it down, and they're very good at chasing down. Yeah, most people, whoever, you know, if they've seen a, a bear in a park or a zoo or whatever, they think it's a big, slow, lumbering creature, but... It is surprising how fast and how powerful those animals are. Shockingly fast, yeah. So back to the start of your company and your wilderness medicine, I want to hear more of that journey to where you are now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I had a partner, and we advertised. We developed our own curriculum based on interviewing outdoor experts and doctors, medical doctors who had outdoor experience. And we, we developed a basic curriculum. The foundation are the... The skeleton of it came from the Red Cross because they've been teaching first aid since 1905, I think, in America. So, and then we, you know, we advertised it and we started getting uh, a few contracts. And then in 1986, yes, 86, I think it was February, a bunch of insurance companies in the United States got together and made a list of requirements that outdoor companies had to had to meet in order to stay insured. And God bless them, one of the things on the list was certification in wilderness medicine. So our business went from zero to 60 in about 14 seconds. We started hiring people for the first time. And fast forward 25 years, we got a contract to uh, provide the wilderness medicine training for Knowles instructors near here in Lander, Wyoming. And that led to Knowles eventually buying the company from us. And that's when I became an English teacher at Central Wyoming College. Well, that's cool. It's hard to start a business. David and I have talked about this a lot because he's in process of doing that as well. And so some of those things take having a big break, right? You know, like you got to have something yours was, you know, now there's a requirement that you have to know this stuff in order to be insured. So it creates opportunities. Sure. I, as far as Business acumen, um, I had zero. My philosophy about creating a successful business, David, is timing. <laughs> and good luck with that. I don't know how to plan good timing. That was certainly why my company took off. I have a number of friends that they just had the right thing happen at the right time. And that was the springboard that kept them alive. So I want to ask a question because this was something that you actually corrected me on about year ago i'm sorry prompting the book yeah but no like something that here in wyoming we think about quite a bit those of us who recreate outdoors is rattlesnake bites they're not real common luckily but they do happen and so just kind of tell us a little bit about what the procedure is 
you know, if you're bit by a rattlesnake. Rattlesnake bites are, they should never be treated lightly, but they're rarely fatal. In fact, approximately, and this is based on a lot of anecdotal information, but where there are pla- where where there are places that can keep track of rattlesnake bites, the number that of the number of rattlesnake bites that are dry, which means they bite but they don't inject venom, is as high as uh, one in four. There's always there's a good chance the snake won't envenomate when it bites. It, it depends a, a lot on how upset it is. You know, a lot of the times they just want you to back off. Of course, you don't know that. So single, the single most important thing to do, I always chuckle when I say this, is stay calm. You know, you don't want to get your heart rate going zippy quick because that, of course, will spread the poison faster. What you'd like to do is keep it isolated near where the snake struck you. So I see so, these kits at the store. Yeah, leave them in the store. Leave them at the store. Yeah. There's never, nothing mechanical has ever altered a significant rattlesnake bite. Okay. And that includes tourniquets or attempts at tourniquets. It definitely includes cutting and sucking. You know, take an aspirin, relax. If you have to walk out, whistle your favorite tune, anything to yourself calm as you walk. The idea would be someone would come and carry you out. So I think that that leads us on to my question is what would be the most important thing, the one thing to, to keep in mind for wilderness medicine and safety? You mean like if, if, I, if you were asking me what's the most important thing to carry into situations where you might have to practice wilderness medicine? Yeah, exactly. Well, as you can imagine, I've probably been asked that question several thousand times, and I always say the same thing. The most important thing that you can carry is knowledge. One of the basic principles of wilderness medicine is that you need to be able to improvise. So when I was actively teaching courses in wilderness medicine, which I don't do anymore, there was a very, very huge emphasis on improvisation. So knowing the principles that have to be met, like, you know, you got to stop the blood from coming out, uh, you need to splint if you think it's broken, Learn the principles and then figure out how to improvise what you need in order to best manage the, the patient. And that's a result of knowledge. It's not a result of anything you carry with you other than your little gray cells. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, you know, we've, we've talked about snakes and spiders and bears and, you know, having a healthy respect for some of those critters and, and having some background knowledge of what to do in situations mm-hmm. Well, my, my son asks me all the time what I'm afraid of, and I just have to tell you. It, it's the three S's. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of sharks. But I'm really afraid of sharks. Those three things scare me. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it I can deal with. Well, the, a very good reason to uh, stay in Wyoming if you're afraid of sharks. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Yep. So you're not going to go to the tip of South Africa and jump in a cage and hang out with great whites i you know I, I was a young young kid when i watched jaws and ever since then even when we're water skiing on the lakes around here when when i let go of the rope or fall off and i'm sitting there waiting for the boat to loop back around i have to uh, lay on my back and stare at the skies and and make cloud animals if if i'm uh you know perpendicular waiting for the boat i just keep hearing da, dun, da, dun. <laughs> <laughs> i just can't do it it's just a you know but on the other hand I've been charged multiple times by bears and 
what what I'm doing is I'm actually up there almost provoking a charge by, you know, harvesting an elk, putting meat on the ground, putting that scent down and and going in these remote places where the the people traffic isn't, right? So I'm I'm almost begging for these encounters and if you just stay in a group, make some noise and are very particular about how you handle that meat, don't let the bear ever get the meat, you can mitigate those. Now you can't completely eliminate them, but you can mitigate them. Yeah, the only way to eliminate them is to uh, stay home. But I totally agree. You can you can reduce your chance for a bear and snake encounter to a very small minimum. But there's nothing you're going to do about a shark. If a shark wants to eat you, <laughs> your dinner. <laughs> well, I don't agree with that. You know, you can wear like uh, charm bracelets that, you know, that reflect light from every angle. Because sharks, things attract sharks besides blood you know they don't swim the ocean sniffing for blood they swim the ocean tasting the water for something they can eat i I really want to go spear fishing someday and just i have this desire to go get a big fish with a spear and take it up to the beach and start a fire and cook cook some protein that i pulled out of the ocean myself and so i'm gonna have to just get over that and go do it get over the shark thing yeah sharks are terrifying though I agree. And so always, some always swim in groups of three and make sure you're not the <laughs> slow. Yeah, make sure you're, you're not the one that looks the most like a seal from underneath. <laughs> yeah, don't wear black. Yeah. So all your years of uh, wilderness medicine teaching and, and all this knowledge, give us a, a scenario that sticks out in your mind, something that happened that... You know, driving over this morning, I, I was trying to imagine... The questions you might ask and that was definitely one of them i don't know <laughs> my favorite dead person um or my favorite successful successful would be better <laughs> quite a few years ago we were i was on a volunteer search and rescue team and we were we did the uh, we were doing a search in new hampshire and um we had uh, it was snowing and we'd split up and we're, we were traveling in uh, twos, you know, breaking the rule of three, so we could cover more ground. It was densely wooded area, and we we hit tracks, which is the best way to find somebody in the snow. Um, track's pretty easy to follow, and we followed the tracks, and we found her. She was laying in a snowbank, and her one I forget which leg was twisted off to the side, and I was pretty sure it was broken. She'd been skiing, you know, cross-country skiing. You know, we hailed her and walked over to her, and the first thing she said was, don't touch me. (laughs) And she meant it. So she wouldn't let us touch her. So we radioed for the, you know, we had a sled, a litter, you know, you could carry a person in, with um, skis attached to the bottom so we could haul it through the snow. And um, it was brought in by some other of our teammates, we pushed it up beside her, and she got into it on her own, wrapped the sleeping bags around her, and we hauled her out. But she, I'll just never forget her looking up and saying, don't touch me. She Sorry. was fiercely independent, it sounds like. <laughs> I think she was fiercely neurotic, actually. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that leads me on to one of the most important things you can do is tell somebody your itinerary, leave some kind of itinerary. Oh, yeah, right? before you hit the trail. Someone should, someone you care about should know where you're going and when you plan to be back. 
Because a lot of hunters get in trouble just, oh, I'm going to go up for an afternoon or just a morning and just go over here, and something like that happens, and nobody knows where they were, where they're going when they're coming back, and it's days before they get reported missing. Sure. And you won't be surprised at least to know that the, the most the most common dead guy was out there alone. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've, you know, had drilled into my head, you know, having family that's worked for the Game and Fish and different things. It's just like, don't go by yourself. Because if you do, and you haven't told, again, like you said, David, hey, this is where I'm going, it sets you up for a disaster, potentially. I mean, all it takes is, you know, something where you step wrong and you break an ankle or a foot, you fall, which happens a lot. You know, some of these hunters that you hear about here in Wyoming, they get lost in the backcountry, falling off of a horse, falling off the edge of a, a slide, you know, and getting injured, and then it becomes the death of them. Sure. And yeah, a twisted ankle can easily become a, a, the start on a sh- short trip to death in country like this, this time of year. And wouldn't you typically say that it's not one catastrophic injury? It's usually a culmination of a couple minor ones? Uh, no. <laughs> not always. <laughs> It's fun to it's fun to say no. No, I think the uh, I think usually it's not the injury that kills the hunter or the hiker or the mountain biker. It's usually the fact that they're stuck. The injury prevents them from getting out, and then the mountains kill them, or the desert, or the because you can you can live for days without water, weeks without food, but you only have to lose a few degrees of body temperature to become seriously threatened. So the the last couple seasons I've learned the hard way a couple good lessons and that's why I'm more a gear oriented and that's why I asked you that question but and I'll just just ramble them off. I've ran out of water a couple different times and so now I'm I'm really adopting this you know if you have one piece of gear you have none if you have two you have one right so I carry a primary water source with a backup water source and then a filter because I'm, I'm running a, a bladder in my backpack. Well, evidently, sometimes today I, I suck that thing dry when I'm still two or three miles from where I need to get to. That's a long walk without any water, so I have an extra liter stuffed in my backpack. But by the time I go through that, now I've got a, a filtration system. And the same thing with headlights, and this come from, you know, having my headlight batteries die and getting to walk out of the trail in the dark, mm-hmm. which is not any fun if anybody's yeah. ever had that pleasure it's it slows you down immensely and then you can have that injury where it's a minor twist my ankle a mile from the truck and i can't get there tonight and now now i'm at a risk of hypothermia because i didn't carry enough clothes to lay on the ground waiting for daylight so i i pack three headlights and a, a spare spare set of batteries now well and the other thing i think about like when you're hiking rigorously you sweat and if you get injured and now you're immobilized and you're wet and then that wind and that cold sets in, you're in trouble, real trouble. There's an old rule for, like all rules, they aren't really rules, but for survival in cold weather, it's not how much clothes you wear, it's how little you sweat. That's why the old, the old dressing adage was to dress like an onion, not something big and bulky, but lots of relatively thin layers so you can take them off and add them back on. And the whole point is to reduce sweat you produce (laughs) i can remember and on i'm not not that old but when i first started hunting i had flannel and wool military surplus wool and flannel and it was heavy 
and we'd be out that I'd get just sweated wet and driving home on the on the drive home in the truck I couldn't get warm the whole drive home for an hour well you were hypothermic yeah and now I I mean what's really neat to see just the last few years that the technical clothing that has been applied at least to the, the hunting industry where yeah, it costs a little money but I've got some thin thin merino wool mm-hmm. shirts you know i got three of them and then you you put a down puffy jacket in your bottom of your backpack yeah you know i barely wear that puffy coat but when i pull it out you can't hike very far in it but if i get immobilized i can pull out those puffy pants and coat and yeah. i'm i'm it's like a sleeping bag yeah and they they're not very heavy and you can squish them into a small space i have mixed uh i have mixed feelings about all the great stuff that technology has brought to outdoor health and safety on one hand, I think that synthetic clothing that wicks the moisture, you know, the sweat away from your body and allows it to evaporate in, you know, personal locator beacons and, and on and on has saved a lot of lives. But at the same time, on the other, when the pendulum swings the other way, I think that technological advances in outdoor stuff has, has generated a lot of people who think that because they got the stuff, they're going to be okay, but then when the uh, when the uh, doo doo hits the fan, they don't know what to do because they haven't packed. So it's essentially, right it's a knowledge. crutch that they're they're not gaining the knowledge they need of how to function without that technical well, it, advantage. Yeah, it's fine to it's trust and know how to use ultra modern things outdoors, but too often I I see them as um, yeah I guess crutch is a good word. If there's always a chance of failure of of something, so you always need to have you always need to be able to fall back on what you've stored in your brain. And unfortunately, a lot of people learn the hard way yeah, the first my, time. That's my theme, by the way. Yeah, yours can be snakes, snakes and mine, bears. Mine will be knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I got a hunting buddy that would would relish on telling this story. I, I used to wear some cotton clothing, you know, and that was a really nice brand of clothing and I purchased it and we went across this stream that was maybe eight feet across and on one side it was eight inches deep the other side was two or three feet deep and there was this log running at about a 45 degree angle and it was just cold enough that the dew had you know lapped up off the stream and frozen just the tip of the log and it went about three quarters away across as I and I looked at that log I said I can stand right there and make the one last jump across right so the the upstream side of that log was maybe six inches deep the downstream side was maybe three feet. I got out the end of that log and started doing the cartoon, you know, feet going, and I jumped in the three-foot side trying to keep my balance, and now I'm waist-deep in. And it was September time, you know, it wasn't, it's not like it was November, December, where it's going to be 32 degrees for the high for the day. No, the high is going to be 67 degrees, but you walk around all day with wet cotton pants on. I, I quickly got rid of that clothing as the coldest I've ever been. Yeah, that can kill you quick. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I've seen. You know, they have those shows out there, you know, of how these people survive and people who don't survive in the outdoors. And a lot of times they fall into a creek, the people who don't survive. And they end up just freezing to death because they can't get the, can't get the moisture off. Their body core temperature drops mm-hmm. and they're a goner. You can lose temperature amazingly fast. You can lose enough temperature to die in a half hour. That's a crazy thought when you think about it. You know, if you're wet and then the wind starts to blow. I had that experience, unfortunately. The sun goes behind a cloud. Yeah. and 
when I, I was elk hunting in Saratoga, this was when I was in high school. I was a dummy. I'll admit it. I, I didn't check the weather forecast very well. You know, I thought, eh, this looks like it's going to be a nice day. And so my dad and I went up and we started hunting. And I was tracking some elk and the storm rolled in. So wind, snow, you know, reduced visibility. And I wasn't in the proper clothing. And just like you said, I, I was hypothermic. I mean, I was shaking so bad I couldn't control it. And so that was a scary enough experience to have that as, as a young man to understand how frail we actually are. And you're going to get frailer. <laughs> yeah. So now I prepare a lot better. So another question I have for you, kind of changing gears, because I know we have some fishermen out there, hook removal. Because inevitably, if you're a fisherman, you're going to get hooked. And I've had the pleasure of removing hooks out of myself and others. Um, and so there typically are three main methods and you call them in your book the good, the bad, and the ugly. You took my line, Patrick. Yeah, I know. They're, they're not pretty, right? And so I was just hoping you could take everybody through that because it is something you do need to prepare for. Well, you, you need to hum the uh, theme song from, you know, the movie <laughs> while you remove the hook. It there always, you go. It always works better if you can picture Clint Eastwood. and you know, da, 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 da. I'll start with the ugly way. That's just where you, uh, yeah, you just... You just cut it out. Uh, there's rarely any need to ever cut out the hook, but you know you just slice along the shaft into the meat of the fisherman who now be might be thinking that they're going to take up a different sport. <laughs> um, and then of course you've got a nasty wound that you have to deal with. When the bad way, and I've seen I've never actually done this, but I've I've seen it done in real life, is where you force the you force the hook through so that the, the barbed part, which is the part that prevents easy fish hook removal, is now poking out through the skin. And then you, you have to have something to snip the barb off. And then the shaft you know, will fit back through the tunnel it cutting the skin and the meat relatively easily after that. It's bad for several reasons. One is it's not easy to push fish hook through human meat and you're you can count on having a resistant patient as you try to force that through so um that brings us to the good way and i've never tried to i've never tried to describe this with just words you know i've always had like a, a whiteboard or a couple of illustrations you need to tie a piece of string and you know the obvious string that you'll have is fishing line but you need to tie it to the shaft of the fish hook and slide the knot down so it's right against the skin. You see that in your mind now? Mm -hmm. And then you want, to, you want to put tension on that piece of string in the opposite direction from the way the, the uh, hook went into the, into the fisher person so that you're going to be pulling the hook opposite from the direction that it went in when you tug on the string but don't forget the final thing you do is is you put pressure on the shaft of the hook and what that does is it forces um, it forces the barb down the barb cuts a channel when it goes into the arm or leg or back of the head or whatever so pushing down on the shaft takes the pressure off the barb and then while holding I'm sure listeners out there are going, what the hell? <laughs> While holding pressure down on the shaft to, to take the pressure off the barb, you just 
you just give a, a little tug to the string. So so one hand is holding the string that's tied yeah. closest to the skin yeah. on the back, yeah. and the other hand is just pushing, pushing down on the down. eye of the hook, well, keeping it. Yeah, or below the eye, close to the skin, so, mm-hmm. so that you, you want to be sure that you take pressure off the barb. The first time I... The first time I ever did this in real life, my patient was a, a 10-year-old who's, you know, the classic dad buried a hook in the back of my arm a scenario. I was totally prepped, you know, the string, the pressure, everything. But when it came to the moment when I had to do that little snappy pull on the string, I hesitated. Uh, you know, I was... It's one, it's one thing to sit here and describe it. <laughs> and then to actually get ready to pull it, looking in, into the little girl's 10-year-old eyes, I was thinking, okay, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. <laughs> and son of a gun, it just popped. It just popped right out. It was just like magic. And she, it popped out so cleanly that she didn't know that I had taken the hook out of the back of her. Yeah, I had a buddy. We were fishing for walleye last year. And it was night fishing. So that makes the odds of getting hooked even better. Is and that legal? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, so the thing is, like, when you're fishing in the dark, it adds an element because, like, especially when you're trying to actually land your fish and the fish is going nuts and you're reaching down, you know, and if you have tension on your, like he did, he had tension on his lure as he was pulling the rod up and reaching down for the fish while the hook came out was actually a crankbait so a treble hook popped out and then rammed into the side of his finger and so not only it actually hit two fingers so he had one barb of the treble hook in this finger and one in this finger so he had his pointer and middle finger pinned together Mm. so we he's like hey can i get a little help i was like sure and came over and i was like oh man this is gonna be fun so we actually did two of the methods one uh, one of the points was already coming out the other side. And so we went ahead and pushed it through, cut it off and pushed it through. Then the other one we used. Did you hum the yeah. theme song? We were thinking about how ugly <laughs> it was going to be. Um, but actually that that process of tying the string around it, depressing the barb and pulling it actually worked out really well. It, it was quick. And the thing that was kind of nice for him was I could do it and he could look away. So he didn't have that hesitation moment, you know, because yeah. I could just do it. But I was amazed because I've read about it for years in outdoor life and seen videos of it on YouTube and things, but I'd never been able to per- perform it. Mm-hmm. I actually used your book for an illustration too, but it it worked so well pulling that hook out. It was like, wow, this isn't actually that bad. And he was like, man, that didn't actually hurt that bad, you know, and it it creates a lot of relief because people don't realize being hooked with a fish hook is actually pretty uncomfortable depending on where you get hooked. So it was nice to be able to get that yeah, out. Well, I'm pretty sure there's no, like, comfortable place to be hooked. No. There are different degrees of discomfort depending on where it is. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a patient once with two of, a, two of the barbs of a treble in his arm. It was finicky, but we eventually worked them out. Fortunately, and you can imagine, one was quite a bit shallower in than the... So every year in Alaska, you know, I go up there, used to live up there, I go fishing. In the ER, they, they place a mannequin right out front, and they take your hook when they take it out of you, and they go place it in the mannequin. So you get to walk in the front of the ER every year, <laughs> and there's this mannequin with all sorts of hooks hanging all over him. It's it's quite a quite an interesting... Yeah, we're, we're in Alaska, is that... 
I lived in Soldatna. Okay. So right on the Kenai River. Oh, yeah. I've been there a few times. They call it angler jewelry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fashion statement I'm going to no, pick up anytime not, soon. Not me either. I really don't like being hooked. But it does happen, and especially on the river, like on the Kenai, when you're fishing and it's combat fishing. I mean, you got guys lined up for miles sometimes, and, you know, you're flipping. So you're, <laughs> you're pulling it up, flipping it downstream and going. If you set the hook and miss, someone's behind you. It can be pretty nasty. Oh, yeah. So, When was the first time you got to go up there, Buck? Alaska? The first time I went to Alaska was when I was hired by a small college to teach. In fact, that was my first college teaching job was in uh, Sitka, Alaska. You want me to tell you the year? Yeah, sure. 1979. <laughs> so what did you do in Alaska like as far as outdoor stuff? Because I know that you've spent oh, extensive time up there. Well... To live in Alaska and not spend a lot of time outdoors is sort of hard to imagine. I think it's a sin. It should be somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there's so much outdoors to partake of, and it's so varied that you could... I sometimes think it's not a good idea to go to Alaska if you're young, because it, like, will spoil you for the rest of your life. Wait till you're older. (laughs) But... uh, now, I went up there in 79, and I taught there for five years, and I saw a lot of the country. I, I became really super fond of sea kayaking because the, the college where I taught had a quarter-mile of shoreline. We owned a quarter-mile of shoreline and a fleet of sea kayaks, so we, I spent a lot of time on the water. But I, um, I hunted. I hunted uh, blacktail, climbed Denali a couple of times when I was teaching up there, took I taught, uh, I taught health and, um, and PE when I was there, and I uh, organized a couple of student climbs of Denali, you know, uh, Mount McKinley. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. I have not ventured up it yet. How was the climb? It's the primary thing that it is is cold, and uh, the, second, the second big thing about it is it's big. So you walk a long way to get from the bottom to the top. The route we took, it was a 16-mile hike to the summit, 32-mile round trip. So it's just an adventure getting to, you know, just the base of the mountain, just the approaches. Oh, yeah. You can walk to the base of the mountain if you got lots of time and energy. Most people fly to the base of the mountain because the Park Service allows several flight services, quite a few flights in and out every day. And those boys are good pilots and they, they land you on a glacier so you avoid the multi-day trek through bear country to get to the foot of the mountain. Now one thing I quickly gathered when I went up there is down here in the lower 48 even off trail you've got good firm ground and you can cover a lot of country quickly. Up there in, in that tundra that muskeg it, you cannot cover ground. You can see a lot of ground but you can't walk there today. No, it's, a, it's a miles and miles and miles of balancing on one uh, muskeg knob to another. And the spacing of those knobs is you can't quite step on top of them. No two are exactly the same distance yeah, they're, apart. They're, they're horrible. They're ankle eaters. Yeah. Well, my one claim to fame is I, I got hooked on doll sheep hunting. Mm. And I just I go back every chance I can get. And it's there's very few places on this planet that I've been so far that you feel 
like you're almost otherworldly than in a couple of those Alaskan mountain ranges where you're, you know, we we float plane in usually, get dropped mm-hmm. off and stay for 10 days or so. And it's when you don't see another person, you don't, I mean, for that amount of time and you don't see any, there's no game trails. There's no, it, there's nothing. It feels like the moon sometimes. A wet, cold moon. Yep. Yeah, doll sheep prefer the most ridiculously hard territory to get to on earth i wouldn't say they're the uh, most difficult country or animals to hunt just because i mean it's, it's 100 percent open you can in about a half hour glass and go oh, there's some sheep now getting to them is a whole different story yeah, but finding cool. them is easy i've never hunted doll sheep hunted bighorn what what's your uh, one of your favorite species to hunt well i'm currently extremely fond of hunting antelope wyoming antelope so why do you pick them? Because you can shoot them <laughs> from a long way away. Despite my advanced age, I could still pick one up and load it in the truck. And they're really good if you take good care of them. Just processed mine this year, and I made up some some steaks the other night. You'd have been proud of me, David. That was pretty good. But took some steaks, kind of pounded them out, and seasoned them, and floured them, and fried them up, kind of like you know chicken mm-hmm. fried steak style for the kids and I and Man, it was it was delicious. We love antelope. We put up two this year. Yeah, I just like to I just like to marinate them. I like we like teriyaki a lot, but we you know we use other marinades. So do you grill them typically? Yeah, then grill them. Yeah. So what what would be your favorite hunting, camping, fishing food? Whether you procured it and brought it home and cooked it, or something that you take and have traditionally at camp all the time. Oh, that's a tricky question. My uh, my taste buds aren't very... I like lots of different stuff. They're not very picky. Gosh, I think that probably my favorite thing to cook on the campfire is like some of the meat that we're hunting. I'm still somewhat fascinated by the mountain man stories and how they would, you know, poke a stick through a elk steak and then suspend it over the coals of the campfire for a few minutes before they ate it. I think uh, there's something reminiscent of, you know, when we typically will grab a tenderloin, like on on my first doll sheep hunt, we took a tenderloin back to our our camp, which consisted of two one-man tents and a jet boil with some mountain house. So (laughs) tenderloin was a a welcome reprieve from mountain houses, but there's something primal about starting a fire, sticking a hunk of meat on a stick and cooking it over the fire. And you got to eat it off the stick, too. Oh, yes. You can't, like, put it on a plate and cut it. Silverware? Are you kidding me? I'm I'm not backpacking that around. It's it's finger food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't I believe you have a book about cooking in the backcountry as well, don't you? I do. I've written a book about just about everything you can do outdoors. Yeah. So well, the low skill things. You know, <laughs> I don't have a rock climbing book or a downhill skiing book. Lots of lots of camping. Hiking, cooking, all the good types of books. Right. So if you guys are out there listening and you want to check out some of these books, it's really easy to find. You can go to Google and you can search in books by Buck Tilton. And uh, there's a whole bunch that come up. And like you said, he's got a lot of different things out there. So uh, different topics, different things that you can look at. But one that I definitely recommend is this wilderness book, Wilderness Medicine, because things happen. 
I've been on a number of different excursions where somebody gets hurt, somebody gets altitude sickness, whatever it is, and you need to know what to do for those folks. And and even for yourself, I mean, if, if something happens to you, you might be the one having to guide everybody else on how to take care of you. So it's important. Thank you, Patrick. So I think that wraps up this episode. Buck, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll look to have you on again. I'm surprised by how pleasant it was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again for coming. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah, you bet. Yeah, thanks, Buck. And now it's time for the recipe of the week on Radcast Outdoors. It's made possible by High Mountain Seasonings in Riverton, Wyoming. Find them online at High Mountain Jerky. That's H I. M-T-N-J-E-R-K-Y, H-I-M-T-N, jerky.com, and use promo code HMS10 for 10% off your next order. Again, that's promo code HMS10. So this last week for this episode's recipe, I was uh, successful on an antelope hunt, and most people are uh, either, either rave and crave antelope, or they, you know, absolutely despise them. But I... Uh, Made a trip over to High Mountain Seasoning and picked up a package of uh, their pepperoni mix for pepperoni sticks. And it was really simple and easy to follow and made a great snack stick. I, we cannot keep, I have to I have to squirrel them away and hide them because I, I like to have a little bit of jerky in my backpack when I'm going hunting. And if I leave it out on the counter, the kids and the wife just uh, annihilate my stash of pepperoni sticks. So it was uh, pretty simple. You know, I just ground up six pounds of antelope. You mix it with the seasoning to the ratios that are uh, on the back of the package. You throw it in the fridge for, they say four. I like to do, you know, just 24 hours. Just, it uh, it helps that really, you know, season in there very well. And then uh, I take and use a jerky shooter gun, put it in the gun, shoot it. And if you have a smoker, great. If not, I've been putting it on wax paper in the oven. You run it, you know, a nice temperature. You want to make sure it's cooked all the way through. You know, they at least 165 degrees. I run the oven at about 220, but it only needs to be in the oven for 90 minutes or so. You pull it out before. You don't want it, you know, black and shriveled up and dead, but you want it cooked. But those those pre-ground jerky shooter sticks are amazing. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation. And we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.